Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. When it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the pathway to peace has always been presented as a choice between a one-state or a two-state solution. But our guest this week, Avi Malamed, suggests that those might not be the only options. Before the most recent string of terrorist attacks, my colleague AJC Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer Jason Isaacson sat down with Malamed to talk about his latest book, Inside the Middle East, Entering a New Era. Jason? Thanks, Manya. Avi, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you for having me. We've talked a lot on this show over the last year and a half about the changes wrought by the historic Abraham Accords, or perhaps it's best to say the changes that were already underway in the Middle East and were validated and were made overt by the Abraham Accords. Avi, I want to get your thoughts on that, but first I want to focus on changes that are not taking place, or at least are taking place much more slowly, changes in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Avi, even as Israel has established formal relations with three Arab states since the last months of 2020, and was close to formalizing relations with a fourth, how do you explain the fact that progress on resolving a conflict between immediate neighbors with such obvious common interests in addressing shared problems has been so difficult to attain? I think that in the end of the day, we have to remember that the story of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not separate from the story of the Middle East. You know, one of my major arguments is that, you know, in the West, there is a common narrative that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict shapes the trajectory of the Middle East. But I'm always arguing it's the other way around. The Middle East shapes the trajectory of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. When you look at the inner processes within both Israeli society as well as Palestinians, the two people are not in a place where they can actually reach a peace agreement for different reasons, for different processes that are taking place within the two people, the Israelis and the Palestinians, the circumstances, the political emphasis, the inability to basically make an historically scale, sort of speaking, decisions. Some of them are very painful. So I think that you mentioned in the opening part, you talked about the historical moment of the Abraham Accord. And actually what I would say also, in addition to that, is that We have also to think about the historical process that led to the Abraham Accord, because it didn't happen out of the blue. The Abraham Accord, to a large extent, also signals the growing sense of what I call the downgrading of the Palestinian issue within the political agenda of the Arab League. The Palestinian cause, or Qadi al-Filastiniyat, has been planted in the political agenda. Not to say that it's not a major issue in the discussion or the public ring, but it it has planted in the political agenda. So when you look back in the Palestinian arena, for example, and you see the inner Palestinian split, Hamas versus the Palestinian Authority, which is an ideological, political split, the involvement of regional players, Iran, Turkey, and others in this whole story, uh, you can understand why we were unable thus far to basically have a breakthrough in in the story of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Avi, the new coalition government has not endorsed a two-state solution, yet it has taken steps to ease friction and to improve Palestinian economic prospects. How would you assess the government's vision and performance on this front, and what has been the Palestinian response to the new government? 
the prime minister of Israel is coming from the right wing hub. I mean, you know, ideologically speaking, at least he's coming from the hub that actually oppose the idea of two-state solution. Just the same, he you know, has to dialogue with a complex reality and has to be pragmatic about it. Now, in the Israeli public opinion at large, not only in the government, this is my observation, is that on the one hand, there is, I would say, most of Israelis support the concept of two-state solution. I think that most of Israelis would like to see two-state solution. None of them, I think, know how it's going to happen. And that's not only because of the inner Israeli, you know, politics and tensions and differences of opinion, but also because what happens on the other side, which means the Palestinian side. And that brings me to the Palestinian side. The Palestinian Authority struggles with the new government because the Palestinian Authority, as part of its attempt to maintain its power in the Palestinian area controlled by the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and also in order to gain dividends in its own power struggle with Hamas, the Palestinian Authority basically has to cooperate with the Israeli government. Uh, It's about an issue of survival, roughly speaking, and particularly right now when the Palestinian Authority is going through this crisis mode. Hamas also struggles with the new government for an interesting reason. The reason for that is that in the new government, we have an Israeli Arab party that is coming actually from the same ideological hub of Hamas the Muslim Brotherhood. And that creates challenge for Hamas. Just for an example, you know, recent announcement by Mansour Abbas, the leader of the Israeli Arab party participation in the coalition, who basically said, I reject labeling of Israel as an apartheid state. You could imagine that in Hamas, they didn't really like that statement. So you could see that from Palestinian perspective, the Israeli government presents challenges for both major camps of the Palestinian political map. In terms of sort of Palestinian reaction to maybe eased economic situation, increased work permits and everything else, I'm reflecting on what you said before about the polls in Israel that show general support for the concept of a two-state solution, but not support for any confidence that there can be in the immediate future or foreseeable future, a two-state solution. And on the Palestinian side, I believe there's also a similar lack of public support for the feasibility of a two-state solution. And in fact, I I believe there's growing support for a one-state solution. How do you assess Palestinian integration of that concept of a one-state solution, which would not be a solution at all? I mean, how do you see that playing out and how can that possibly be turned around? I think your observation is accurate. Yes, on the Israeli side, you have most of the people, I would say, supporting two-state solution, but don't really see it as a feasible one. And on the Palestinian one, There is a growing sense or a growing sentiment dosing or calling for the one-state solution, but they also don't see that. They don't see feasible. Peace agreement between Israel and Palestinians is not achievable. It's not achievable because there is no magic formula that currently can meet both sides' aspirations and needs, whatever. But if we talk about in the context of like an arrangement, that is something that could be achieved, and it has to be done in a frame of a regional envelope. And in any case, any kind of arrangement, agreement, arrangement, just call it whatever you like, between Israel and Palestinians has to be done in the frame of this regional envelope. Now, once you go that direction and you kind of like not necessarily sticking to the two-state, one-state option, maybe then what happens is that you open a space for bigger maneuvering capacity. I think we need to think out of the box move towards the idea of some regional arrangement. I don't know, it can be done in different frame, confederation, 
something that is similar to the structure of the GCC or any other kind of like a frame, bringing in the major Arab players that has an interest in stabilizing the situation. And from there, try to find some kind of like structure or doable arrangements that has a layer of building upon time. But do you envision in such a formula, really an innovative out-of-the-box formula, a situation in which Palestinians would have autonomy, they'd have passports, they'd have a flag, something that they clearly have expressed again and again that they have a great need for at the same time that Israel has a great need for security and for uh, defensible borders. Definitely. Um, by the way, Palestinian has passports and they have flag and they have diplomatic representatives across the world. They have embassies, sort of speaking. But yes, you're right. In terms of like meeting the national sentiment of the Palestinians that goes beyond the symbolic level, obviously there is a lot, um, a lot that has to be and can be done. But again, I'm saying if we try to meet the basic, the most significant needs of the two sides, we have to go from a different perspective. Let me come back to what you were saying at the very beginning of our conversation, Avi, about the steps that led to the Abraham Accords and the lessening of the sort of the priority that Arab governments were assigning to the Palestinian conflict. Lack of interest, really, and very clear from the conversations that AJC has had across the region for decades, um, lack of respect, frankly, for Palestinian leadership. But, but do you see this kind of a arrangement that you're envisioning now requiring really a different level of kind of political investment by Arab governments in helping to resolve this conflict? And do you see that being possibly an outgrowth, in fact, of the Abraham Accords, which I must tell you, in the many years that we've been engaging Arab governments, we've been promoting this concept. You will actually help the Palestinians if you engage Israel. You're not going to undercut them by engaging Israel. Can that actually happen? Yes, I think it can happen. Look, I mean, the Arab leaders are not deserting the Palestinians. They just have a change of priorities, and, and you, as you accurately mentioned. They are saying to the Palestinians, look, we are committed to your cause. We are identifying. You have our support. You need, you Palestinian, you need to make an inner decision on a national level. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do when you grow up? Now, the Arab world says to the Palestinians, and by the way, it was very interesting. In, in, in Arabic, it was translated, I'm, I'm kind of like making it very generally, but basically they said to the Palestinians, we will support any decision that you will make. The subtext of that was, we will support any right decision that you make. And what does it mean, the right decision that you make? For example, as long as Hamas is lining up with Iran, to a lesser extent with Turkey, but particularly as long as Hamas is lining up with Iran, the Arab world has not, not, has not any incentive, particularly the Gulf major countries, have not any incentive to support the Palestinians, to interfere. They are demanding some fees for their support. The United States has begun a new initiative, the Nita M. Lowy Middle East Partnership for Peace Act, to support Israeli-Palestinian business and civil society interaction and interdependence, an effort in which AJC has been involved for many years. Do you see the possibility of this sort of grassroots and business-to-business engagement building a platform for political progress on the Palestinian side? Yes, definitely. But I have to add something to that. And I've been saying that all along. The grassroots activities, whether in terms of like building uh, civil society coalitions, business promotion, boosting economic activities and capacities, and so these are all very significant. These are all things that are crucial. 
but they must be done in dialoguing with understanding of the major surrounding environment, region environment. In other words, if the United States of America failed to understand the game of Iran and Hamas in Gaza Strip, the United States of America could pour billions to support this grassroots, which is wonderful. But at the same time, if the Iranian regime has been given a free hand in the end of the day to continue and conduct its own aggressive regional policy, the Iranian will continue to fuel the flame of the conflict. So you got a situation where the American administration, kind of like acting on those two arenas, the regional arena and the Israeli-Palestinian arena, in a way that is kind of like detached. And if you fail to understand the connection between arenas, your ability in the end of the day to impact positively a change towards the direction you want to make, your ability is quite slim. And I think that up until now, that's what happened. A lot of money was poured into activities of grassroots, civil societies, and other things, and other initiatives, which are all very significant and very important. But in the end of the day, the resulting outcome and impact of those initiatives was much less than was expected and hoped. In the Middle East's new era that you portray in your latest book, what role do you see the United States playing? Uh, and, and what role do you see for other factors, external factors? Uh, for instance, the prospect of further pandemics, the certainty of climate change. There are so many other factors that are weighing on the, the peoples and the states of the Middle East. I think that the United States uh, has major challenge in the shape of what I call this unsolvable inner power struggle between ideal politics and real politics. And I think that one of the outcome of that inner struggle was the inability to shape a comprehensive, cohesive policy that really enhanced the United States' interests in the region. You see kind of like a back and forth dancing policy, foreign policy, that sometimes achieve something and sometimes it's totally counterproductive. One of the manifestation or one of the expression of that is the whole issue of the projection of power, something that I think also the United States policy shapers are struggling with. And there are many aspects of that issue, of course. It's not black and white. So this, this is as for the United States uh, policy. By the way, uh, reflecting from the region, the a wide common um, perspective today in the region, in the Middle East, is Arab commentators are basically saying uh, the United States is a declining force. Uh, we may turn more and more towards China, uh, Russia. It, it, I'm sure that it's not something that you, you'll be surprised to, to know. It's, it's out there, it's in the discussion and so on. You mentioned accurately pandemic, that up until now, relatively speaking, the governments of the region were able to successfully uh, pass this, this major challenge. Um, and remember, this is happening in time where the region is, is going through an enormous turbulence uh, in the shape of the Arab Spring, the Iranian aggression and other things. Um, one of the things that I would pay attention in that context of pandemic is, uh, and I'm sure that intelligence agencies are thinking a lot about it, is what are the lessons that uh, militant Islamist radical groups are taking from the story of the pandemic? In other words, I would say that it increases the hazard of a biological terror. And this is something that we have to be aware of. They have been looking at what happened across the world. This is something that I would say that we should be guided by the concept, not if, but when. That's really sobering, Avi. But let me say also on a more, maybe on a more positive side of this, 
three months before the UAE announced the normalization of relations with Israel in August of 2020, we had an AJC webinar with a senior Emirati diplomat who talked about the possibility of public health cooperation between the Emirates and Israel before there was a relationship between the Emirates and Israel, a formal relationship. So the realization that there are regional issues that need to be confronted by parties all working together, including Israel, with which these countries didn't have relations, was emerging in a way that really we hadn't seen before. So perhaps the challenges that the region faces on water, on pandemics, may also be a driver toward recognition that working together is the only way we're going to solve problems. Afi Malamed, this has been fascinating and really enlightening, and I thank you for spending time with HAC on People of the Pod. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining me this week is Natalia Mehmoud, Associate Director of U.S. Muslim-Jewish Relations at AJC and Program Director of the Muslim-Jewish Advisory Council. Natalia is observing the holy month of Ramadan when Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset. And this year, the month of Ramadan began on April 1st. The 30-day religious observance coincides this year with Passover, which begins on April 15th. Protestant and Catholic Easter on April 17th, and Orthodox Easter on April 24th. And I should add, it also overlaps with the New Year celebration of Theravada Buddhism and Hanuman Jayanti, a religious festival to celebrate the birth of the Hindu god Hanuman. So you're here to school us on Hanuman Jayanti, right, Natalia? I do know some things about Hanuman, but most of that knowledge comes from Bollywood movies. I know, I know, I'm kidding, joking. But I imagine many American Jews do feel just as unfamiliar with Ramadan. Can you give our listeners a crash course of sorts on what this holy month is all about, how you observe it, and why? Sure. It's one of the five pillars of Islam on which the structure of Islam rests. It is prescribed for Muslims in the form of a month-long abstinence from food and water, and it's accompanied by devotional activity. Ramadan is the ninth month of the Muslim calendar, And it was during this month that the Prophet Muhammad started receiving revelations that were later codified in the Quran. Does everyone fast, regardless of age or health? There are exceptions to those who can fast, such as children under the age of 12 or the elderly or women who are pregnant. If an adult does not fast, they should try to make up the fast later on or give to charity instead such as my father, who ever since he had his heart bypass surgery is unable to fast and he gives to organizations that feed the poor during this month. So what's the purpose of fasting? Why is that the ritual that is at the center of Ramadan? So the keynote is self-discipline and self-control. We believe that fasting is important for the moral and spiritual conditions of Muslims. It is meant to develop compassion and removes the barriers between rich and poor It also allows us to thank God for the blessings that we have. During Ramadan, we go about our usual activities, but also try to dedicate some time towards increasing acts of worship and striving for good deeds. Think extra credit for all the spiritual acts. Oh, nice. When did you first fast? I believe I was 10 or 11, and my family eased me into the whole process. I remember getting up before dawn and eating with them, but then I would fast until noon. And then after a few days, I was allowed to keep the full fast on weekends. And then after that, I was allowed to keep full fasts on weekdays as well. Were you eager to do it? I was very eager. My friends, in fact, started fasting before I did. 
Um, growing up in a Muslim-majority country like Pakistan, there is a celebration around the holiday, and I just wanted to be a part of it. So traditionally, Ramadan is a family holiday, right? I mean, families take on the endeavor of fasting together. That's right. The evening meals are occasions for family and community get-togethers. In the evening, we go to the mosque to offer special prayers called the tarawih. You can also perform these prayers at home. Um, the idea is to connect with God, our inner selves, families, relatives, communities, and society at large during this time. Did your family have memorable traditions when you were growing up? In terms of iftars, there are certain foods that somehow are only made during this month. We usually have light meals to open our fast. Like I mentioned, I'm originally from Pakistan, and most of the dishes in my house are from that region, which can be described as street food, um, such as fruit chaat, which is a spicy and tangy fruit salad, and pakoras, which are vegetable fritters, which are spiced and fried until golden and crispy. You know, I'm curious, since it's a family holiday, yes, but is it also a time when Muslims take on endeavors together with others? I mean, for example, I remember reading a story several years ago about Palestinians who offered Ramadan tours to Israeli Jews of neighborhoods that historically had been scenes of violence during the Second Intifada. And they saw Ramadan as a time to heal. And the Israeli Jews who participated discovered that they didn't know nearly enough about the religion of their next-door neighbors. Is Ramadan often treated as an opportunity for interfaith activities? Is there a teaching or a tenet of Ramadan that invites this? It certainly is, and especially here in the U.S. where there's so much diversity. A number of the Muslim Jewish Advisory Councils have hosted iftars since the council was formed about five years ago. During the pandemic, we started having virtual ones. But as this world slowly opens, we've started seeing more of the interfaith iftars coming back. Just this month, the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council in Dallas is hosting a kosher for Passover meal, and it will be hosted at a church. And the speakers include Rabbi Charlie Walker, who was taken hostage in Colleyville earlier this year. And I know you had our partners from the local community on your podcast speaking about the various interfaith groups coming together during the hostage situation. We did. Is that event open to the public? It is. Oh, wonderful. Okay, well, if there are any Texans out there, we'll include details of that event in our show notes. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us this week. Ramadan Kareem. Thank you, and Shabbat Shalom. If you missed last week's episode, tune in for my conversation with The Washington Post's Jason Rezaian, who was held hostage by Iran for nearly two years. Jason breaks down the negotiations between Tehran and world powers to reach a new nuclear accord and explains in simple terms precisely what's at stake. And amid the recent rise of terrorist attacks in Israel, you can join AJC in urging members of Congress to stand with a Jewish state. You can find more information in our show notes. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.